Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. I noticed listening to yesterday's podcast, I did not say hi, Abe, and I threw you off, and I apologize. It's not that I didn't want to say hi to you. Apologies I just forgot. Okay. Uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so, Sidney Powell, the lawyer who was briefly engaged by Trump, kind of, sort of, on the Georgia irregularities supposed in the election. Uh, Her lawyer has now filed a brief in the defamation lawsuit filed against her by Dominion Voting Systems, claiming that her the things that she said about how Dominion was owned by uh, Venezuelan communists and uh, had uh, done this and done that and done the other thing were simply expressions of opinion. No reasonable person could have taken them as fact-based. And uh, therefore, she is not guilty of defamation because she was merely expressing a political opinion. Uh, This comes as polls continue to suggest that up to two-thirds of Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Much of the evidence, supposed evidence for the theft of the election, of course, came from the claims by Sidney Powell and others about the gaming of the election systems, particularly by Dominion. So the argument that she was merely expressing an opinion that a lot of other people came to believe seems to me to be um, false on its face. And uh, more important, what will the reaction of this recalcitrant band of disappointed Trump voters be to the fact that their tribune and their brave stalwart defender of the Kraken lawsuit has basically said that she was, you will excuse the expression, bullshitting. Will this change any minds? Will this be some version of the Khrushchev speech and awaken people to the fact that they were sold a bill of goods that simply reinforced their own priors and was a way for them to uh, avoid coping with their own disappointment at the results of 2020. There are a lot of avenues for the Stop the Steal folks to go down. Um, They don't need one um, crazy conspiracy theory uh, to work with. I mean, the more the better, I assume. But they can always switch to, oh, well, this is about the rules changing. This is about the press covering up documents. Um, This is about uh, 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 Democrats doing other things. It doesn't have to center on um, voting machines and 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 foreign government. So um, I think I mean, I think interestingly, though, they will um, lump her now in with like, you know, their their group of traders. Um, but but they don't necessarily need that argument to hang on to their to their overarching conspiracy. Yeah, completely agree with that, in part, because, as you said, John, it's an article of faith on one hand, on the other hand, more responsible people who make this argument center it on um, unfalsifiable claims regarding the rules changes in places like Pennsylvania that are may have had some impact on the number of it. They can't quantify it, obviously, because it's just sort of a conjecture, but it's nevertheless a conjecture that isn't falsifiable. So you can't argue it. And that's probably where they're going to rest their argument on. Second, you know, they jettisoned Sidney Powell during, I, I think it was in December or maybe late November, when she had become a, an embarrassment 
herself in her in the affidavits she would file she filed petitions to the court where she would make claims that all uh, all manner of voter fraud is alleged here like literally saying every variety of voter fraud that you can possibly imagine has been committed in this case and um her public conduct was so embarrassing to the to the trump campaign that they already they they washed their hands of her so they have plenty of space to say that we've already got a plenty of distance from city hall well it's it's funny that that i mean that's that's not a high bar you know the trump campaign's you know uh, tolerance for for high uh, wild claims but i thought it was interesting that in their actual defamation suit uh dominion had an interesting line in there about uh, it wasn't just that uh, her lie the lies that she was spreading publicly were bad for their company but they said that she she was uh, the false claims about the machines were to financially enrich herself raise her public profile and to ingratiate herself to Donald Trump so there's like there there's some interesting little zingers about uh, her behavior that are that are useful I, it, it is worth pointing out that in these sorts of defamation lawsuits the defense she's mounting is uh, pretty common for for public figures, usually like television pundits and whatnot. I mean, I think Tucker Carlson had a defense like this once. So did uh, Rachel Maddow. You can actually make an argument that your personality and your profile is such that people should take what you say with a grain of salt because you're partly a performer. That's usually not what a lawyer does, though. So it's, <laughs> it's an interesting she's actually giving a defense as a pundit when she was acting as a lawyer for Trump. Well, that's a real problem because, of course, she was unknown. I mean, it's an interesting thing that she is essentially embracing the idea, uh, which happens in 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 libel cases, let's say, or defamation cases, that she is a public figure and therefore, uh, you know, there's a whole. It, but she wasn't a public figure, right? She she was an unknown person who became a public figure slinging these charges around and um it seems prima facie the case that she has done real damage to dominion voting systems no republican secretary of state in the united states can now engage dominion voting systems to help at least for the foreseeable future to help count the vote uh you know in 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 elections uh because it's too hot to handle and um and they will, I mean, it seems that seems like an open and shut case. So it raises an interesting question about they ever dead to rights that their business was harmed. The idea that she had the right to harm their business because she was expressing an opinion and a lot of other people came to share her opinion um, has a has a certain um, chutzpah to it uh, because they they accepted her opinion certainly because they wanted to believe it, but also because she said, I have the 205 names of communists in the state department in my pocket here. We have the facts, the Kraken did this, they did that. There's this happened. They switched these votes in Arizona. They did the blah, da, 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 da. And, and it was all, made up and you can't just make up lies that are injurious to somebody and then say, well, I'm allowed to, because it's my opinion. You, you actually, there is a, even, uh, you can libel a famous person, by the way. I mean, you can, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to libel a famous person under the terms of New York times versus Sullivan. I'm, I'm mixing, stuff up here. But what I'm saying is it's not like you are shielded from the consequences of express of saying things either because you're famous or because your target is famous. You're not. It's just the bar is higher. But in this case, no one had ever heard of Dominion Systems before and no one had ever heard of 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 Sidney Powell before. So it's a gambit. Uh, the fact that this is her opening gambit means that she is screwed. I mean, if this is the best that she could come up with, she is a she is she is a walking she is a dead duck. I mean, I, you know, I I don't understand how she is going to survive financially, personally, or in any way, shape, or form. Uh, if this is the initial claim, which is well, you know, it's like um, it's like Otter in Animal House saying to Flounder after they destroy Flounder's car, you know, you screwed up, you trusted us. <laughs> you know? Well, and but did good for Dominion, which has had an extremely aggressive uh, 
lawsuit strategy from the beginning of this. Uh, you, they've, they've actually gone after networks and, and other groups that have been promoting this similar sorts of lies about the voting machines that required, I mean, I think there was one, one of these uh, right-wing networks had to actually stop, had to kind of read a disclosure statement sort of saying, what this guy says over here, we don't agree with because that's not actually true. I mean, they've actually forced the hands of a lot of the sort of propagandistic uh, stuff that has been said about this election. And that's good. I actually think that's the only tool in their toolkit that's going to see these kinds of results. So good for them for having a pretty clear strategy about this for months now. And yeah, also, so if I'm reading this right, um, she did file on, on a variety of, of really embarrassing um, petitions for the court. She did file the claim that uh, voting machines in Georgia and Michigan in particular used election machinery designed by Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, which is central to the allegation that is in this defamation suit. And if she filed that before the court without having any evidence of it as and knowing that it was false, she should be disbarred. Well, I, I don't know if it's just disbarment. Like, okay, we're not lawyers. Now we're just like, now we're just throwing stuff at the wall. But, um, I think she should, uh, she almost certainly will be disbarred, but forget that question. What does it mean to file a knowingly false brief with a court? I mean, I guess it's a civil suit, not a criminal suit. So I don't know, but, um, that I mean, you know, uh, people can email us who know better uh, th- than we do. But I mean, that there might be criminal sanctions for stuff like that. You can't do that. You can't file an official document with a court uh, f- with knowingly false statements. I mean, doesn't it say at the end of these things, you know, sworn to, uh, on this date, you know, December yeah, right. third, the year twenty twenty, knowingly and willfully false statements in a signed affidavit or a signed petition before the court is is perjury. That's what I'm saying. Perjury is a felony. Perjury is not a misdemeanor. I mean, perjury, as far as I know, is a felony. I mean, maybe. So she's in a whole lot of trouble, but let's, let's put her to one side. The question that faces us as a, as a sort of, as an ongoing political question is, Is this now, are we now, if the lawyers who threw this crap at the wall are now denying the truth of the the things that they said, does that mean Kevin McCarthy still has to pretend that the election was stolen? Does that mean that Ron Johnson can still open up his idiot, idiot badger mouth about crap that he is just making up? I don't understand it. I mean, is this where we are? Because the Republican Party is now knowingly, or major officials in the Republican Party will now knowingly be continuing to advance ideas about the election that are being denied by the people who advance them to save their own hides. And yet this may have become a kind of... um, necessary swearing of allegiance to the party and everything for which it stands, which is horrifying when it comes to achieving some kind of a sanity in, look, we're in serious waters here, right? We have, we have Biden is now proposing an extra $3 trillion of spending We've got, you know, a crisis at the border. We've got $2 trillion going out the door for the coronavirus relief bill. We've got major tax uh, hikes planned. We've got China nibbling at us. We've got all kinds of things going on. This is not a game. This is not Donald Trump's game show. Uh, Democrats are, you know, are putting us in a very serious... um, you know, the country is changing, is getting radically more, the government is getting radically more interventionist in the economy and in all sorts of ways. And we're, we're going to be playing this stupid game. 
I mean, am I, I mean, you know, am I taking crazy pills? No, I mean, if if McCarthy at all were smart, they would actually use this moment to make a pivot that that needs to happen. I agree with you, John. I don't know if they're capable of doing it, but they could actually say, look, we, you know, we, we need to reboot. We're looking at these people who were who were selling us this bill of goods about what was going on with the voting machines. Now it seems they were just lying. They were self-aggrandizing, et cetera, et cetera. They can, you know, they'll throw, they can, they're happy to throw people like Sidney Powell under the bus. They could do that and say, we actually need to get back to doing the work that an opposition party should be doing right now, which is looking at all of these threats and all of these challenges. I don't, I don't think they're capable of doing it, though, because they're still worried about the voters who put Trump in office in the first place. I mean, I think um, what, what they're not capable of doing and what there's no way they will do is um, reverse their positions on these things. What they can do, and I don't know if they'll do, um, and this would be just good for the country if more people do this, is kind of move on from these things, at least move away and and slowly or you know better yet quickly forget about these things but there will always be somebody who's not responsible who can leverage the sentiments to your on your right flank and say well this guy's a quisling this guy's mm-hmm. not sufficiently committed mm-hmm. to the narrative that to which we're all beholden you know not to reinforce your suicidal tendencies john here both major parties have uh, origin myths have na- have uh, uh, organizational narratives that are injurious to national comedy, that uh, make light of and impugn our institutions, that Republicans now believe that American elections are flawed, irredeemably so, and that uh, they cannot win in, in, a, in a fair fight at the polls. And those institutions are hopelessly corrupt, and Democrats have convinced themselves of the activist left narrative that those same institutions are forged in racism and slavery and are irredeemable as such. And these are really helpful for cohesion within their movements, but they're terribly uh, offensive to anyone with a with a sense of history and propriety, first of all, but also to uh, the idea of uh, of national unity. And um, I don't see any way out of that because the, these two parties find it more valuable to adhere to these lies than to approach the electorate as it exists and try to convince and compel. They're they're more interested in shaming and reinforcing a victimhood narrative. I mean, it's not just that. I mean, Democrats also have their own uh, narrative about how elections are corrupt and flawed and unfair. We need H.R. 1 to federalize elections uh, in in contravention of the Constitution in order to make sure that Republicans don't steal elections through voter suppression. So every everybody's got their own narrative. And all of these narratives are not they're not only destructive of national comedy, they are destructive. They're lies. They're falsehoods. They are falsehoods that are excuses to explain away things that are very easily and properly explained as the choices of the electorate. You know, it's uh, it's a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, we you know we've we've uh, mentioned many times Stacey Abrams on this podcast and her her narrative about what happens when you go to the polls is is very much, um, although not as extreme as what the the uh, Trump supporters were arguing the last election, has a, that same corrosive effect. That no, I think you're right, and John, you're right to point out. Um, I will say that it's ironic that you know that right now the Democrats are trying to overturn the results of an election in Iowa, in the Iowa second district, using you know kind of a, a congressional procedure because it was a very close election, and the Democrat who lost refused to to have it recounted. At, uh, through the judicial process in in the state, and so is now thrown into Congress. And anyway, the, while they're debating HR one, there's also this other effort to overturn an election. So there's a lot of stuff going on with elections that will have really could have potentially negative consequences. Uh, the next round. It's also, I think, important that in the discussion about the infrastructure bill, which you mentioned, John. Um, the Biden administration doesn't seem to have yet decided on what its strategy is going to be. In other words, are they going to ram it through in a partisan way like they did with this last uh, COVID bill? Or are they actually going to try to negotiate with Republicans? And they feel like they could do either one, which I think is another sign that this idea that the Democratic majority won't overreach is is going to be really tested on this next round of of spending, I think. I mean, you know, remember, we have this senator from West Virginia, uh, you know, a state that Trump won by 30 points, standing there 
uh, and a senator from uh, Arizona who wants to uh, keep her uh, seat, and though that state is uh, more purple uh, than it used to be, clearly Kristen Cinema believes that her future viability rests on uh, being a moderate, and so there there are the two of them, and until. 2023 uh, and the results of the 2022 election, they're going to have the whip hand on stuff like that. And then we get to this weird question of whether or not the Democratic interest, certainly it's the Democratic interest in the House, is in advancing radical pieces of legislation because they have the power to do so with this incredibly thin, uh, you know, majority, um, five seat majority. Uh, that the Senate cannot possibly agree to, and then they get to they get to run with the you better let us win next time um, and do better next time because the Republicans stole are continuing to steal elections. I mean that's that's where that's where we're going to have we're having this big flop around. If that bill the 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 you know cleaning up and advancing the interests of Democratic electorates bill uh, doesn't pass. Then the Democrats become the party of elections being stolen, uh, a mantle that Trump just wonderfully seized from them after 2018. You know, when uh, when Stacey Abrams had seized it after losing an election by 60,000 votes, I think something like that, 60,000 votes. Um, but to you know, to some extent, these are these are engagements that they're they anticipate losing. And that's part of the strategy. And HR1 isn't a new initiative. They introduced it um, when they fir- when Democrats first retook uh, both chambers of Congress after the 2018 elections as a statement of principle. It wasn't supposed to become law. I don't know what they do if they ever caught the bus. It's supposed to be something that is shot down by the upper chamber of, uh, co- of Congress. Didn't even pass the House the first time around. It wasn't supposed to become law. It's supposed to become a talking point. And that's but, its value. Its value is that it represents uh, a, a thwarted objective that if it were to become true, we would live in a land of milk and honey and all, all elections would be fair and just and Democrats would win all the time. But because it doesn't pass, they get to have the narrative of victimization of election fraud, just like the Trump win. Yeah, but I, I, I think all the all such sort of, you know, um, theatrical m- motions like that. Um, are either either intended to or or even if not eventually sort of work their way into what people consider to be the realm of the possible you know i mean once it's once it's introduced it's it's now made thinkable on some level no i, I that's very important i mean i know you may be right that there's a you know cynical uh you know effort to sort of gin up the passions of the base by advancing legislation that can't possibly pass. But that's a, that's a very dangerous game you're playing because you, you um, voters, ordinary activists vote. They don't think that it shouldn't pass. They think it should pass. They want it to pass. They think that this is very necessary and, you know, advancing legislation in bad faith or in sort of like, you know, gimmicky, you know, to kind of like, yeah, like to, to feed the, to feed the beast and, and, and get people on your side and all that. Um, uh, that is yet another thing talking about like screwing with national comedy. I mean, this is where you get people uh, descending into cynicism and a, and a, and an understandable nihilistic sense that politics is a game, uh, for the people who do it for a living and they're playing you. They are playing you, which is where we get back to sort of Sidney Powell and this uh, and this crazy nonsense. Like if she were a person of any remote principle whatsoever, she would never have accepted that this that this should be the argument being made on her behalf. That she was lying, that she was just like you know prevaricating on TV in order to make herself famous and you know get a lot of support and and suck up to Donald Trump. I mean that's a that's a horrible thing to say about yourself. You have your lawyer saying that about you when you've been on, on, you went out for six weeks saying you were there to save American democracy. Yeah. You know, I was just, uh, you know, I was just, you know, come on, it's all in good fun. Come on. I mean, you know, people, 
I know this sounds like a weird thing, but you know, people used to be, would, would have been too ashamed to do that once, you know, on, on a matter of such all-consuming importance as the viability and uh, legitimacy of the election of the president of the United States. And um, granted, we're, we, we, are we, we are well beyond, uh, you know, any reason to express shock and outrage at uh, cynical depredations of, you know, what Noah kept calling the entertainment wing of the Republican Party long ago. But um, uh, just because we are, you know, we no longer have a, a reason to do so when it's this naked and this, you know, this exposed, um, you know, I, I have, I still have a little more faith in the, in the in the in the good sense of of most people who will you know after the after the passions die down and maybe after they're not fed so much constantly in this diet that they'll be like yeah yeah you know uh, we lost we lost in 2020 it's really terrible it was close though it was really close you know well that's one of those things that I'm <clears throat> that I'm not sure you can suss out from polling data because we, we keep talking about how the right knows how to game polls and how contemptuous they are of poll takers and how poll takers themselves are contemptuous of the people they survey. And so they're not a really reliable metric. So to what extent do people really believe the stuff that they tell pollsters? None of us can know the answer to that. And all of us know that because we can't know the answer to that, we should be suspicious of their results. So while it is a, a significant number of Republicans who say they don't trust the 2020 elections outcome, how many of them really believe it? If you, you know, if you put them on a rack, shot them full of sodium pentothal, I don't, I don't know. And I don't think it would be nearly as large as it is in polling. Oh, guys, man, I, I want to tell Oh, go ahead. Well, well I, I just, I mean, as someone who's completely skeptical of polling, I have to say that I have just it, it, this, the idea that it is, prevalent um uh, corroborates just with my anecdotal experience i mean well same um, here but all of us yeah. self-select for people who are very invested in political outcomes and political narratives mm. well that's well that's true but you know when when the whole point about the Sidney powell line was there there was this general line right which is that there were there was ballot fraud in these counting in these places where there was counting right so in Michigan, when they were counting in Detroit, there was fraud. And in the Fulton County arena, there was fraud. People were kept behind a pillar and they went to the bathroom and then there were ballots put here and there and, and all of this. Uh, all of it was made up. Uh, but nonetheless, it was at least they substituted fake ballots for real ballots or they, they, they shoved new ballots in and they counted ballots. That was argument number one. Then argument number two was that the machines were jimmied with, right? The machines were reporting numbers that couldn't be true in all kinds of places. And the same people who believed number one then, of course, also believed number two. Because the issue wasn't whether or not there was a credible allegation of, you know, voter fraud, following along the lines of the way that there's voter fraud ordinarily, which is that, you know, people sort of manufacture fake ballots and you just get enough to get over the hump. You know, a couple hundred, you know, after after the count is done, you get the ballots that you need or something like that. But a a after a time, this then grew into this giant because it wasn't enough. You weren't getting enough to overturn all states. So then it had to be that in some states... Dominion had an algorithm that was changing the vote totals in your direction. And I don't know a single person who believes that there was voter fraud in the Fulton County arena who doesn't also believe that the voter machines were jimmied with. Therefore, it is the, it is the idea that we couldn't possibly have lost the election. Um, and that, of course, was in part the idea, right, which was... Trump wanted to make sure part of the way, for whatever reason, for whatever bizarre reason he had thinking that he could somehow establish on the grounds that because the election day vote would be Republican and it would come in first, that he could establish the fact on the ground that he won as the Democratic 
early vote and absentee vote and all of that came in later and that somehow this would mean that if he that he could somehow prevail even if democrats won this was his cockamamie theory uh and he spent months preparing for it and then you had the post election kind of uh, impro- improvisation of the voting machines which by the way was a lift, a Republican lift from a Democratic paranoid conspiracy theory from the 2000s that the Diebold voting machines were being screwed around with by the Koch brothers. Right. I actually, I was going to, I'm glad you brought that up because to, to Abe's earlier point that may, even if a Sidney Powell or, a, you know, a, a, anyone else is, is proven to have been lying deliberately to, to advance their own agenda on behalf of Trump. You only need a handful of people to believe one or the other of the conspiracy theories, which can then be consistently drip fed by social media and, and whatever, you know, sort of message boards people get on. And it can it has a long tail. These theories have a long tail. So even if one goes down, there's still plenty of others. And so I would be curious to know if anyone, if any political scientist has studied how that Democratic fueled Diebold mis, uh, machine conspiracy theory fizzled out or didn't. Or if it morphed into something else, I'd be curious. I don't know the answer to that, but I would like to know what the answer is. And and also, you know, it's just worth mentioning here. It's obvious, but it's true. Uh, Trump himself is not giving up on the idea that the election was stolen because of this, and he won't change his mind because you know his C, his CPAC uh, speech was about how he won and won big, and he may come back to win again a third time, as he said. Um, he's not going to back down from this just because of. Uh, her sort of retraction of the of the voting machine. Well, I will say but even he, that's so annoying because he's admitting his own lie. No, but you can't you're constitutionally barred from winning a third time. <laughs> well, but he keeps using that. It's funny. He's going to be the the boy who cried, "I'm going to run for re-election because he keeps using it as a threat whenever someone says, "So and so might run." He's like, "Oh yeah, if that person runs, then I'm definitely getting back in the race." I mean, he he's used that a couple times about like ridiculous Meghan Markle who's like, "I might run for president." So he's like, "If she runs, then I'm definitely running." I mean, these these kind of weird tabloidy responses that he's doing are going to start to become it, it's weakening his brand, as it were. And then there is this interesting confluence of of, of interests from left and right, which is that uh, every at every debate in 2024, the question is going to be asked, do you believe that the 2020 election was stolen by liberal reporters? And so the question is, is that going to be the fealty test? That's where I was going with this earlier. Because well, it, liberal it reporters be. want want to hang, they claim the election was stolen, that Biden is an illegitimate president, around the necks of every single person who runs for president. And Trump has the same interest. And every single Republican will be indictable by their standards. Because what the conscientious wing of the Republican Party will do is to finesse the issue and to say that... Oh, there's there's questions. There was irregularities. Nothing specific, of course, but you know, just the the general sense of impropriety in these elections is injurious to the American civic compact, and we have to be very careful and cautious about how people perceive elections, and we must strengthen elections and what have you. And then somebody's going to burst through the wall like the Kool Aid Man and say, "No, Donald Trump is the president of the United States now, right now. He is the president of the United States," and that's the guy who's going to, to enliven the Republican base and shift the narrative much farther to the crazy side because people, the governing wing, will start chasing after that narrative and the votes that are associated with it, in part because they will be so loud on social media. They will right. be the loudest people in the room and create this outsized impression of their own strength and uh, and numbers. Guys, can I tell you about my new chair? I got to tell you about my new chair, a new sponsor, the X chair. They sent me a chair. It's in my house. It's an office chair. I've never had an office chair that looks or feels this comfortable. It's amazing. So comfortable. I can sit for hours, never feel uncomfortable. The secret is not only its patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back, but now thanks to their new H, uh, their new X HMT technology, I can also get heat and massage therapy while I'm sitting at my desk. So instead of my old uncomfortable chair, now I look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager, the 
XHMT delivers heat and massage technology right to my core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that make working from home or the office a joy. It even has four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when I'm sore. Look, you won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs. The X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X chair commentary.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-WHEEL blade casters. That's xchaircommentary.com. Um, so... Uh, so that was fun. I I love talking about things that are 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 irresolvable and uh, and just uh, just incredibly depressing somehow. Uh, and more more signs of uh, more signs of our sort of national crack up uh, and the world in which we no longer seem to be able to to deal with it uh, with a with a common reality. That said, uh, and I know we don't like polls and all of that, but um, you know the polling. On the corona, on the relief bill, on the stimulus bill, on this insane, poor, crazy package is so good that it is pretty staggering. I mean, the the ultimate truth, which is that tell people you're sending the money and it kind of doesn't really matter what party they're in. They're kind of kind of going to like it. Uh, real clear I, I, politics today has it at, I don't know, 68%, 69% support. Well, getting money is going to always be popular. Getting money that you didn't have to earn. That's like a bonus check. But I, I actually had this idea because I was reading today about the infra- the, the new infrastructure bill that he's thinking about proposing all the other spending he wants to do. And the word that kept popping up in all these from the Biden administration is free this, free community mm-hmm. college, free pre pre-K education, free this, free that, free that. And I feel like if, if if we're at all thoughtful conservatives, we need to start keeping a tally of how many times the Biden administration promises that they're going to be giving something free, which of course is a lie because it will be paid for by some taxpayers, just not others. We need to start keeping a tally in the same way that the mainstream media kept a tally of all of you know, Trump's lies. I mean, I just feel like this, this free money, the, the idea that yes, people might right now be very happy to be getting those checks in the mail and many people need them clearly. Um, I'm not trying to downplay the need at all, but there's there's evidence that, that you know, a year from now, that's not gonna be at, at the forefront of their minds. If, if the recovery hasn't been what we expect it to be, if, you know, if crime is up, there could be a number of other things that are coming into play. But the use of the word free for all of this stuff is driving me absolutely mad. <laughs> well, you know, I said it before, but in light of that, it bears saying again, the Biden administration, this is another way in which it is effectively further to the left than would have uh, a Sanders administration have been, right? Um, Bernie was the one promising free this and free that, uh, free jobs, uh, you know, uh, free tuition, free everything. Um, this is, this is you know, this is, you know, the Sanders sort of, you know, uh, party by other means. And the thing is, when Bernie said it, Everyone said, see, that's socialism. This is what we're talking about. He's the, he is a socialist. This is a problem. This is scary. When Biden does it and the Biden administration does it. We go, oh, no, this guy's the moderate and we're in a crisis. It's just building back better. Right. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if they're saying he's a moderate or not. My, my sense is that among liberals and leftist activists, they're like, this is better than we ever could possibly have imagined. I mean, there is fantastic stuff going on here. I feel like I died and went to heaven. That's, that's what, from what I can tell, that's, that's what they're, that's what they're saying. And they're right to say it. You know, it's sort of like when George W. Bush came into office, you know, remember famously tied election. He ran as a, you know, he ran as a compassionate conservative and all of that. And, uh, and he did push, you know, no child left behind, but his early appointments were very much to the right. Uh, you know, John Ashcroft and, and uh, various other people. And, 
people on the right were ecstatic because they kind of thought they didn't really, I mean, they liked him, they didn't trust him, they weren't sure. And he made it very clear, he signaled very clearly that he was he was moving to the right in order to consolidate his party and solidify uh you know solidify his his base which was actually larger than Donald Trump's base i mean he did win essentially it was a 50-50 election um and I, biden's sort of doing exactly the same thing the difference is he's doing it with you know a checkbook, you know, he's doing it with money and uh, with the um, implicit endorsement of the Fed and, and, and Jay Powell, who made it clear yesterday that the spigot of, you know, the spigot of the printing press was going to remain, you know, running 24 hours a day uh, because the recovery is uncertain and unclear. Um, so uh, there's going to be e- for, uh, loose money, easy money, uh, enormous amount of taxpayer dollars uh, going out to taxpayers, repurposed, you know, uh, red- redistributed. And the question is, at what point does the rubber meet the road and do they actually have to start paying for everything that they're promising? Now, I don't think any of this stuff that is now being talked about is going to happen. There isn't going to be an infrastructure bill. He can't go forward with another $3 trillion in spending. He could go forward with another $750 million in spending on something that for which there was, co- uh, which there was common agreement toward. But no Republican can agree to that. And Manchin can't agree to that. Cinema can't agree. There may be other Democrats facing 2022 who do not, who it's one thing to say you want to do this because there's 80% support for getting the country back on track after the pandemic. And there's another endorsing leftist wish lists on, you know, green, whatever, and, and, and bridges and stuff like that. And, and he's not going to get it. So. uh, And that's the stuff that people are going to be talking about in in November of 2022. Um, Conservatives have long known that it's very popular for the electorate to vote themselves the treasury and that we should be cautious of that impulse and suspicious of it. But nevertheless, it is popular, but the effect will be quite fleeting. Um, Goldman Sachs estimated that a full third of stimulus uh, disbursements would be sunk right back into the stock market, which is some really high octane liberal populism. But those are the people who are going to be seeing this money in their portfolios in the, for the next year. For everybody else, this very quick shot is going to produce consumption, which is what it's designed to do. And that consumption will have been forgotten about in 18 months. The notion here that you're going to have people you know, racing to the polls to extend their gratitude for Democrats who, to give them you know, the $3,500 that they got 18 months ago sort of defies our understanding of how one-time payments work and the psychological effect of, uh, of the, the fleeting psychological effect of those one-time payments. So, I mean, there's, there's every reason to believe that the, the polling numbers you're seeing now won't be the polling numbers that we see in uh, two years. And, the, and Biden's left flank will be demanding those payments be made permanent, right? They're temporary now, but you can already see if you, you know, if you read the sort of left-wing progressive social policy stuff that I've seen, already that drumbeat has started. Like, this will not be enough. This is, we got our foot in the door. Now we need to fling that door open and make all of these payments permanent, particularly the ones for children and and single parents. Right. That's a different argument. But the argument that you're hearing from the left-wing activist class is that it's, it's a cushion for people who don't want to work. I mean, I wouldn't say those words, but it is. It's for people who don't want to work, find work unfulfilling, and have every reason to find work unfulfilling because work stinks. So it's just a, something to you know cushion you and create this this um, you know backdoor to a um, universal basic income. Look, you know, this is a good time to talk to you about the Act in Line podcast uh, because this is an issue that is discussed every week on the Act in Line podcast. Acton asks, what good is freedom without virtue? And that's, of course, the question here. Are we talking about things that are designed to help promote the virtue of the American people in the American experiment? Or are we talking about 
things that are, are about limiting a freedom by encouraging dependency. So you can join economists, religious leaders, writers, newsmakers, and thinkers every Wednesday for conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics on Acton Line, the flagship podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish and that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. So to, to, to subscribe to Act in Line, visit actin.org slash commentary or search Act in Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. Um, I, uh, one, one interesting aspect of an interruption in the liberal narrative, uh, that is, seems to be enjoying an uninterrupted run here is that, um, the salvation of the country uh, uh, is through the vaccines and the vaccines are of course the creation of the, uh, industry, uh, that is maybe the most hated among Democrats now, right? Big pharma. Uh, we've seen, um, the crisis of the 2010s, essentially uh, the fentanyl, uh, Oxycontin crisis, uh, laid at the at the at the door of the the Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family, um, and uh, and the idea that you know these uh, profits were uh, that uh, that this company created uh, a marketplace for the dissemination of extremely um, addictive uh, painkillers and drugs on the basis of. Uh, a single footnote in a scholarly in a in a in a research paper uh, detail from the stunning book Dreamland that everybody should read, one of the most important books of our time. Um, and of course, this was finally the thing that they wanted to get big pharma, which supposedly uh, gets you know insane profits from you know sucking on the teat of the American of of the of ill America, right and. Uh, for a lot of us, this has always seemed to be an insane and suicidal attitude to take toward the people and the companies that have created these miracles that have made people live far longer and in greater health and under much better conditions that they ever have have before. Uh, and now we have, you know, three or four different companies that are making these vaccines in record time, manufacturing them, creating them, uh, bring them to market and, uh, and, uh, you know, studying them and providing them in a way that will, you know, that faster and more remarkably than anybody has been led to believe. Uh, and then there was a story in the New York times about how many epidemiologists and public health people around the world are mad, uh, because, we could have, or the world could have, or the W8, some form of international control could have been taken essentially of the patents for, and the, and the material uh, for the vaccines and seized and essentially then taken by governments and manufactured uh, by them, by themselves to make sure that everybody in the world gets them properly. Um, so the res- their response to the fact that uh, these firms were given a, a relatively modest incentive, I would say, uh, to create the vaccine, you know, that they would they would they were getting advances from the government for vaccines that they had a very good theoretical basis to believe were going to work, but still needed to be made and then tested, <clears throat> and so the U.S. government fronted the money, said, guaranteed the purchase of the vaccine sight unseen, uh, this system seemed to have worked insanely well. And uh, yet again, in a world in which ideology trumps everything, uh, there is still an argument being made that somehow they are exploiting everybody by stealing. Are these, 
Are these same people calling for the internationalization of the patents for the Russian vaccine? Or the Chinese vaccine? Or the Cuban vaccine? None of which seem to really work. No. How dare you? How well, dare you and, say and they don't they, work? What kind of a what kind of a Western centric monster are you? Well, and have they even acknowledged, even momentarily, just how corrupt the World Health Organization, which would be the obvious answer for who would distribute and, and you know kind of internationalize this so called effort, that they are completely in the pocket of China and and actually exacerbated this crisis by lying to the world about what was going on there at the beginning of the virus. I mean, it's it's comical and tragic, but. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, the article itself said, you know, <clears throat> if you were to set up a factory to manufacture the virus in, you know, I don't know, Burundi or something like that, it could take years to <clears throat> create the facility that could manufacture it. it. Could take three to five years to like install the equipment, get the pure, you know, cre- create the sort of the pure rooms, you know, these, these, uh, these facilities have unbelievably strict requirements in order to make sure that the materials aren't adulterated. And, um, you know, uh, the, these are kind of astonishing. It's a, one of the reasons that Biden made this deal to help produce the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, you know, to have that kind of team up where I guess Pfizer was going to help manufacture the Johnson Johnson vaccine is there's really what Merck Merck. I'm sorry. Is that there's really no choice because it's not like this is not a thing where you can build, you know, an Amazon center and then transship goods out of an empty warehouse. Like you need high precision machinery that takes months to install and test and stuff like that. And there are only, seven or eight or 10 such facilities practically on the planet earth. I mean, worse for these self-flagellating oikophobes is that this uh, project that produced this MRNA technology is maybe one of the most profound advancements in medical science in a long time. Uh, We've already seen as a result of this MRNA technology, the patenting for the first effective malaria vaccine um, which could reduce human suffering on an untold scale across the planet Earth. They're turning their attention now to certain cancers, um, which could produce in medical innovations that we haven't seen in in 50 years, 75 years. I mean, this is the sort of thing that is an advancement in the human condition that is attributable to the capitalist enterprise and the United States entirely that is going to produce a lot of consternation among people for whom the United States and capitalism in particular can do no good. Well, nothing is as upsetting to progressives as progress. Uh, and this is, you know, a, a massive display of it. And they don't know what they're beside themselves. It's just terrible. Well, and right, a well, progress you know, that started yeah. under Trump, of all people, right? Like, <laughs> Well, it's not just that, by the way. There's also the fact that there are things that should be happening in the course of this pandemic that can't happen because... We've already heard about, if you've read about this, like some of the syringes are being made by a single company somewhere in the Northeast, I can't remember where, run by cousins who hate each other. And so there's actually like deep family, uh, you know, uh, fighting over how how this stuff is done. It's like New York's pizza wars. (laughs) Exactly. And, um, And, you know, things like these spit tests, to see whether you have COVID that uh, Michael Mina, the Harvard epidemiologist has been talking about for, for months. And so why don't we have these? Why don't, why aren't there more syringe makers? Why aren't there, uh, you know, litmus tests, lick the paper and see if you have Corona because medical devices have been under attack for 20 years in the United States. The industry that, that manufactures medical devices, first of all, was under tort attack constantly. And then uh, the Obamacare bill um, capped things and banned things and nationalized things and made it so that uh, this is not a field in which to be an entrepreneur. It's not wise. And it was always a kind of bizarre attack on a field in which the United States was so far in advance of everybody else on the planet uh, in terms of competitive advantage and everything else like that. That you had Democrats essentially warring with, or you know, the tort lobby, whoever it is, warring with this 
thing that is not only an unalloyed good for the world and for health and all of that, but something that something that kept where America was unambiguously number one, as it is in the world of pharmaceutical manufacture. And yeah, they are they are hostile to it because they don't control it and they don't like not controlling things. Um, and I, to look at what's happened over the past year and to be angry because the patents weren't seized or, you know, the material wasn't seized and, and somehow internationalized, not even nationalized, but somehow internationalized, uh, is, a, is a pretty stunning fact. My microphone fell there. Well, and heard. to not acknowledge that we're, we're anything like a global institution like the UN involved in anything like that. If you think there are conspiracy theories now about voting machines, imagine the conspiracy theories about a, a about that kind of control of the vaccination process. Right. Except those would be accurate. Because, exactly. because, right. those, because those when you get the UN involved, honest. you have you have things like, you know, oil for food and, and whatever right. else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, guys, you know, we are we are um, five days out from the Passover Seder. And uh, so it's time for my daily reminder that you have five days to get yourself Mark Gerson's The Telling, uh, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life, uh, his uh, re- remarkable book length examination of the Passover Seder, the Passover holiday, and the Haggadah, the manual to the Passover Seder. Um, uh, For those who uh, don't celebrate the Seder, um, this book provides a pretty, pretty original way to come at the question of what motivates, what, what, uh, what enriches and what is uh, special in particular about Judaism and the Jewish people uh, in a very accessible and fundamental way. Because this this holiday, which is, of course, known to everybody in popular culture terms because of the Ten Commandments and stuff like that, um, uh, very, very specific and unique and original to Judaism and represents a a gigantic advance represented a gigantic advance in the world's understanding of the idea of the of the intersection of the divine and the you know and uh, morality uh, monotheism and uh, how to live a moral life according to uh, dictates uh, that are. Um, otherworldly or, you know, or eternal and uh, eternal verities rather than based on just the sort of passions and fads of the moment. So uh, it's a great chance if you are interested in the subject to get a very interesting perspective on it uh, using the book that is probably best known uh, aside from the, the Torah itself is the book best known to Jews and the book that has been best known to Jews for you know more than a th- for about a thousand years so that's the telling by mark gerson amazon barnes and noble get the audiobook download it to your kindle you will thank me um so i i i kind of ran out of uh, things to talk about anybody have anything you want to talk about no, we should note that you're you're on the road today, and that's why the microphone is moving all over the place. So you have other things on your mind. You're allowed. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sitting. I'm sitting. I'm sitting. Uh, I'm sitting on a on a roadside uh, uh, in Nassau County uh, on Long Island, um, and I've had to move the car around uh, because we kept losing signal. So um, so yes, this has been a slightly distracting time. Isn't that fun? You're getting you're getting a, a backward. You're getting a glimpse at the at the peripatetic nature of our existence. If we go back, by the way, to last spring, um, uh, we had terrible troubles getting good signal to do this when we went daily for this podcast because I was somewhere where just did not have good Wi-Fi and uh, and uh, it was hilarious. Right? We were. <laughs> We were like bouncing all over the place. Also, I didn't. I also didn't have good Wi-Fi because, like, my kids were all in school on the same Wi-Fi. My wife was working on the same Wi-Fi, and then we were, and we needed all this bandwidth for 
for this. And so that was just another wonderful pleasure of the pandemic that, uh, that somehow, uh, you know, we'll be happy to draw a veil on and never, never remember again, I guess. Um, okay. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll say goodbye until, till tomorrow, by the way, uh, we are not going to have a podcast on Thursday. Uh, I will be on the road. Noah's going on vacation. Tomorrow comes the great training when Noah will be instructing, not tomorrow, today, no one will be, Noah will be teaching Christine and Abe how to produce the podcast. And this is a challenge. If you, Abe and I not being the most technologically savvy human beings, um, will, Noah has his work cut out for him, but he's a good teacher. I hope so, because my intention here is not to uh, make myself redundant. So, uh, you know, I hope you guys don't take so, to it. I'm going to get yeah, a jacket with, that's bedazzled with the words producer <laughs> yeah. on it if I can figure this out. So I'm just telling you that now. <laughs> hey, can I, can I make fun of you just for a minute? Yeah, this is your favorite topic with me. I, it's not my favorite topic. Go for it. Go for it. Let her rip. Let her rip. While Christine says that she is, is technically challenged, that is actually not true. This is She wants to be technically challenged because she does not like the internet. And uh, but is actually quite quite skilled at it. Abe, who is a techno futurist and a man who sits around reading about space and space exploration and all of that, that really it's not it's it's not good. It's it's, it's, it's not. It's when you not great. You're not when you when you mentioned the training, I, my palms started getting sweaty in anticipation. Ah. <laughs> uh, Oh man! All right. Well, um, so until until tomorrow, uh, please have a great day uh, for Abe, Christina, and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.